Okay, so I'm gonna do a few cases and we're gonna take a break so everybody can go to the bathroom, okay? Um, so we mentioned the guidelines. I did wanna say if there are things, if you, for those of you who use it, and if there's anything that's not meeting your needs, if you have suggestions, I would love to hear about them at the break. I thought after hearing today, one uh, topic that might be interesting to add would, or helpful to add would be kind of treating in a resource limited setting. I think that would be helpful because we kind of go through ideal management, but if you, people can't do it, understanding what's the priority. So if you have ideas on that, grab me. So uh, let's start with a question about testing. Which of the following patients does the CDC currently recommend should be offered hep C testing? So we said a 45-year-old woman on hemodialysis, 54-year-old Midwestern man with normal liver enzymes, 33-pregnant woman from Egypt, 41-year-old man with HIV acquired through sex, all the above, all but two and three, or all but three? Take a minute and go for me. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I did the same thing live in the last week. Okay. So most people thought everybody there should be tested. And I'd agree probably everybody should be, but the CDC actually does not currently recommend that um, pregnant women be tested. And it doesn't address people from endemic areas. I think some of you probably realize Egypt's an endemic area for hep C and, um, and also um, pregnant women. So the current CDC recommendations are that um, test baby boomers and the rest is risk-based testing. Okay, so if, if the pregnant woman had acknowledged a risk, they would. But I do think Tennessee is doing the right thing, testing pregnant women, and the IDSA ASLD guidelines actually do recommend this. And it's because of the shift in the age distribution of hepatitis C that we've seen with the opioid epidemic that I, you know, it now uh, makes sense to test younger people and pregnancy is a venue where we reach young women. Um, I do think we should add, uh, if people are receiving family planning or prenatal counseling, that would be even even more ideal time to cut, to test people because you could treat before the first pregnancy. And this, since uh, treatment's not currently recommended during pregnancy because we don't have enough data on the DAAs, although people are investigating that, and maybe soon we will be able to treat during pregnancy. It's not currently recommended, and so you would wait till after the pregnancy and then uh, treat women and hopefully at least prevent any transmission risk in the next pregnancy. Dave mentioned my mnemonic for remembering the different medications, so I'll mention it quickly. So um, these are the medications you've already heard about. Uh, I remember them if you're not going to use the brand name, which I know a lot of people use the brand name. It, anything that ends in Previer is a protease, and you can remember that because the PRs. Uh, the Bouviers, you just have to remember, they're nukes or non-nukes. And then the Asvirs, uh, I say AS looks like 5A backwards. So super scientific, but that's how you remember that's an NS5A. <laughs> and so then you kind of know what you're dealing with if you care about that sort of thing. Uh, so let's talk about treating. Actually, I'm going to skip this one in terms of time. Kind of what you, what you use uh, is, depends on the situation. That's what we're going to go through. We're going to go through some of these scenarios. So these are current combinations that are available. We'll talk about the ones that are used most frequently over these cases, but I wanted to show you, and I think we've talked a little bit about this too, that there's two now that are pangenotypic. So if you don't want to keep all of this in your head, I think keeping those two regimens in your head is the way to go. So that is the phosphorvalpasvir and glucapavir pembrantazir, and that can cover almost every scenario you need for treatment, uh, initial treatment of hep C. 
the brand names are of Clusa and Mavirat, okay? So those are the two regimens I'm gonna probably talk, spend most time talking about. But there are other regimens, and I do think um, sulfosphere, lidipsphere, hervoni, it's also kind of worth knowing because it's about to go generic, I've heard. So that may be another reason that affects price that you may want to get reacquainted with that regimen. So this chart's nice for your reference. I won't go through every detail in here, but we have the pangenotypic ones on this side, okay? And we have the, um, the ones that are limited to certain genotypes on that side. On the top, you have medications that have a protease inhibitor, and you've already heard you don't want to use those in decompensated cirrhotics. So those are the ones you worry about people with bad liver disease not using. And then the bottom half you can't use in people who are on dialysis or have very low creatinine clearance because the phosphorus uh, requires a creatinine clearance of, uh, or it's recommended to have a creatinine clearance above 30. So the top ones are good to use in renal patients. The bottom ones are good to use in people with a more advanced liver disease. So just kind of to have that in your, because you can, uh, we'll share these slides with you if you want them. Uh, so all these clinical scenarios that were so hard to treat in the past are really actually very treatable. You can be very encouraging to your patients. So let's go through a uh, case. So this is a 26-year-old Caucasian woman with genotype 1B who was diagnosed during her last pregnancy. Um, she has no cirrhosis and her hep CRNA is about 1.2 million. Her risk factor was IV drug use. She hasn't used in a couple years. Um, she's treatment naive and her fibrosure shows F0. So I understand there might be some issues with getting her treated in Tennessee. Fortunately, in New York, I can treat this person. But even if you couldn't get treatment, what are some things you can advise her on? Is there anything? I mean, well, so let's say you can't get treated. Let's say, you know, you're in a state where they're not going to give you meds for someone who's F0, and you can't get the money anywhere. So what, what do you want to tell her? There's some things you can Right, you can advise her about alcohol, right? Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> vaccinations. Yes, vaccinations, family planning, how to prevent transmitting it to other people. So there's still lots to do, and then you can monitor her until there's a point where we can treat her, and hopefully that'll be in the near future. But I don't think painting a huge doom and gloom picture for people who we can't treat is that helpful. I think to be very positive about how, what we can do and, you know, and reinforcing that you're hopeful that treatment will soon be available for her and to keep checking in. I think those are the messages. We don't want to just lose people forever because they hear the message. They don't, uh, they aren't uh, appropriate for treatment because they are, they're just unable to get it right now. So, um, so which of the following regimens though, let's assume we can prescribe something, which would not be recommended for this patient with hepatitis C genotype 1B and no cirrhosis? So Sofvalvox for 8, Sofvel for 12, Sofvalidipsphere for 8, or GP for 8, which is not appropriate. Oh, I did it again. Okay. So, um, so yes, correct. That is what we reserve for people who are treatment experienced, where the initial treatment didn't work. Um, so we wouldn't want to use that. And all those others are good options. So we have eight-week options and 12-week options. So this is sort of the minimum you need to know pre-treatment. And I do think, I agree in a resource-limited setting, you may not need the genotype. Usually if you're using an insurance, they require the genotype before they will uh, cover the medication. So you would get it. But if I was uh, prescribing for someone who I 
you know, thought I had a low, who was unlikely to be cirrhotic um, or showed they were not cirrhotic, I may not make them pay for a genotype. I think it doesn't really change what you do in most cases if you're going to use one of those two pan genotypic regimens I mentioned. But here's kind of the minimum things I do send. You do need to do staging, knowing if someone's cirrhotic, yes or no, is extremely important. You need to know about prior treatment, medications for drug interactions. We'll talk about how to deal that with that. Um, in New York, we have a helpline, uh, a helpline, and I used to tell people to do this, but then people called and they said, you had to be from New York to use it. So now I say, just like feign a Brooklyn accent if you're going to call it. <laughs> but, um, or you could email. I'm sure, Cody, do you do the AATC mini consults? Things like that. We have that through our AATC site. It's a good way. There's always, you know, people you meet here, feel free to email me if there's a question. These, I find these Hep C questions are usually quite easy to address over email and, you know, depending on cases. So. Feel free. So the um, genotype uh, 1B, here are the options that are recommended for this patient by the guidelines. You can see there's four options, eight and 12 weeks. If she were cirrhotic um, and it, wasn't, it was compensated cirrhosis, all of the regimen should be given for 12 weeks. So the only setting we use eight weeks is for people who are non-cirrhotic, okay? Just that's one important point. But there are eight-week options, and that might help keep costs down. So. Going on to this, um, we decide we're going to prescribe sofosphere lodipasphere for that patient, okay, for the eight weeks, because it just became generic, and maybe that's going to be your cheapest option. We'll see. So true or false, resistance testing should be formed prior to treatment when using sofosphere lodipasphere for eight weeks. Can they vote? Yeah, go ahead and vote. That's correct. You do not need to do resistance testing in that city setting. So don't do it. <laughs> um, when the only time we do it, remember, for initial treatment is for that Elbisvir Grisepavir, which we're not using as much anymore because it's not pan-genotypic for initial treatment. Um, so here we go. That's showing you if she were genotype 1A. If it's genotype 1B, we don't use it at all. Sorry, I should have said for she was genotype 1B, so we never do resistance testing. The only time we do it for genotype 1A is when we're using that one regimen. Make that clear, and that's why. So this is how we run things in our clinic. It sounds like a lot of you are treating, probably have your own system, but it helps to get you know teamwork approach. I use nurses, and I know many people use pharmacy, um, and it's um, getting through the patient assistance programs or the insurance barriers are... Uh, it it, it are, can be challenging, but it is accomplishable. And uh, part of what I do to help with that is try to clearly note in my, after I see a patient, why if I need to use a certain regimen because of drug interactions or something, I try to put that there so, you know, to, to have the information so that people who are helping me with this process know why I want a certain regimen. It's not just a random pick. And if it is just a, you know, a random choice, I will say that other ones could be used if their insurance provides that. We set the patient up with a list of when we want the monitoring. This is the kind of background when I first started doing this. You see, we did a lot of monitoring. As Dave mentions, now there are protocols studying just handing people treatment 
and uh, never doing a lab test the entire time they're on treatment. And I think you know we may be a little early to start that. I think most people would recommend doing a week four lab at the minimum. Yeah. That's what, that was one of my questions I was yeah. going to ask with other Yeah. Yeah, I think um, you know there are certain groups I might not do that in, and then uh, would be particularly people who are, have Hep B and are surface antigen positive. I think you want to do some kind of test on treatment, and we'll show a case like that to to see if anything's going on with the liver test. People with more severe liver disease, if you're using a protease inhibitor, I think you'd want some on treatment test. But other than that, I think, you know, maybe there's a couple other scenarios. I think most of the time we don't do a lot of it. We don't change much based on those labs, right? Um, I think the week four one might be helpful to patients to hear they're very low or undetectable if you're feeding that information back. But I don't think we've proven that if you don't do that, people won't take it. So I think there's quite a few studies ongoing where they're looking at that. And I think it will, I, I haven't seen the final data on one yet, so to know that it works just as well. But I suspect, you know, it, it, it certainly will make it easier on the patient to not have to come back and forth for labs. I think a week four right now is what I would still do. You'll get some information on viral load. Yeah. Right. So I think the downside, if you don't have that week four, you have no idea where treatment went wrong, right? You have no idea did they not take it, if treatment goes wrong. But I mean, the bet you're making is that it's going to go right 90% of the time. So it's only that 10% of people, but can you predict who they are? So that'll be another interesting thing. Is there some predictor of a person you should monitor versus a person who doesn't need monitoring? You know, maybe that's what those studies will help us figure out. So I think, um, so. I don't know. Do you agree? You would do a week four still, or would you? We still do a week four as kind of routine, but um, I don't remember the last time we stopped somebody because of something we found at week four. Yeah, I do make phone calls if they're still detectable at week four, just to make sure they're taking things. Are they having any issues with how they're taking it? Are they using like a antacid medication? Should they not be? Did they start something that might be interacting? Just to try to like you know, optimize treatment if they're still detectable at week four, but I don't stop it if they're still detectable. I think that's... So, um, I may be the wrong person to ask. I'm a super monitor. I like a lot of information, so I would bring them back and check at week six. You saw how in the beginning how often I was checking blood work. But, I, you know, the, the guidance is to do that if, um, again, if they're very close to undetectable, there's probably not a lot of reason to do it because... And I think an important thing about monitoring, too, is that resist the temptation to, like, extend therapy or add ribavirin if the viral load is positive at week four. It makes everyone kind of nervous. Um, but there's really no data that shows that yeah. that will help you in any way. They tend to, if they end up, they end up doing fine. And then just anecdotally, for people, if anyone's new to treatment, make sure in that conversation, it goes without saying, but make sure if the viral load is normal, it's negative or undetectable, to make sure the patient knows that that's not the day they stop taking their Hep C meds. Right. I, yeah, I've had a couple people that have gotten like the wrong. Yeah, oh, people do get the wrong question. I'm cured. Yeah, yeah. Undetectable does not equal cured. We yeah. can't say you're cured till three months after. Oh,
I would be tempted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you shouldn't. But you shouldn't. I don't want to. No. And have I been guilty ever once or twice? I have. I think you want to, you know, if you, yeah, I think it may be just worth, or if someone's detectable at four weeks and they're on an eight week regimen, just to peek back at the chart and make sure they met all the criteria for eight weeks that, you know, you didn't have a prescribing error. They really should have gotten 12 weeks. That's a time where I usually do that to reassure myself. Yes, this really was an eight week candidate. Yes, it's week four and their viral load is 120. I don't need to change anything. I'm going to just ride this course out. Yeah, go ahead, Cody. So for actual weight, aspirin potatoes in this particular site, Alcatraz. So we actually look back at the question and institutionally with the health of our special pharmacy and our work with the board of the Mansfield Health Care Center. About 1,500 patients treated over a three-year time period. Uh, we had about uh, somewhere between three and four percent of it caused measurable viral load between FE4. I think those are all smart. If it's just detected or not detected, I don't even sweat about that. But if it's quantifiable is when I like get a little bit. <laughs> but I, I do sweat a little bit. I don't change it. And then I do reassure myself there are retreatment options if this person were to fail. But I don't know that extending their therapy would have made a difference. So, and, and data suggests it would not. You do not need to do that. So, yeah, of course. I would repeat it, but in general, when that happens in my own lab, in my own experience, those patients are not relapsing. There is a kind of noise in the assay that is sometimes uh, picked up. I don't know if it's cross-contamination. I don't know why it happens, but I would not tell someone 
they were reinfected or their hep C, when it's non-quantifiable but detected, often I find that's like noise in the assay and you want, I almost wish they wouldn't report that. It just makes people anxious. Um, but I would retest them, you know, and, and usually they'll just be not detected. So that's, um, okay. So I have this little algorithm you, that I use. I'll do, go through it on the next case. So this is a 45-year-old man, African-American man, genotype 2 and cirrhosis, hep CRNA 200,000. He's treatment naive. He was cirrhotic based on a transient elastography, but compensated in no um, liver cancer. Other medical history he uh, listed there, and he also has hep B surface antigen positive, but his DNA is negative, okay? So here's the regimens you can use for genotype 2. Remember, these are the pangenotypic regimens. One is eight weeks for non-serotics, one's 12 weeks, but he was serotic, so no matter which regimen I use, he's gonna get 12 weeks. Um, so prior to treatment, you recommend which of the following additional evaluation? Hep B genotype, Hep C resistance test, MRI to evaluate for HCC, or transplant center referral. Which of the following? I'm gonna admit, I'm being a little tricky with this one. Trying to be a little tricky. We need more people to vote though. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so a lot of people said MRI to evaluate for HCC. I mean, you could do that, but we already did a sonogram and his liver wasn't particularly nodular. I think, you know, we have evidence he doesn't have HCC. What I was getting at here was actually the one no one picked with transplant center referral. And not because of his liver, his liver is okay, but because of his kidneys. So he should be evaluated for a kidney transplant if he's interested in that because we know that hep C positive patients can get hep C positive, can get kidneys that, um, kidney transplant faster because they're eligible for hep C positive kidneys. Now that may all change when people start using hep C positive organs, but right now, uh, you know, his, his wait on the transplant time, his wait for a kidney transplant would be much shorter if he still has hep C. Okay? So he, has, he, had, he had dialysis. He was on dialysis, yeah. And the other thing that comes up is if he's cirrhotic, whether he needs a liver with his kidney. Kidney, yeah. So it depends. It would sort of be a, a conversation too of if he was more decompensated, you wouldn't want it. His liver they might not transplant. be well enough to get him through just a kidney transplant. Yeah. He might be compensated afterwards. So it would be. Yeah, that one it might be, be a little. A, a little. A lot of debate. Of what there would be some testy yeah. stuff on this. Mm -hmm. uh, in that case, then maybe it would make sense to just treat as hep C anyway, it's a little longer for a kidney. If he doesn't need a liver, you know, I don't know. Right. Yeah, Either so way, it would be Yeah, there'd be discussion. So, um, so don't forget that. So for our patients who are on dialysis, it's really tempting just to treat their hep C, but you want to at least have a discussion about do they want a kidney transplant first. And some of my patients just are adamant they do not want a kidney transplant. I don't, you know, for whatever reason, and that, or they may not be eligible, and then go ahead and treat their hep C. So he's not interested in this. Um, we, I'm going to skip this one for sake of time because we talked about he, you would want a 12-week regimen because he was cirrhotic. Uh, here's the GP data. It works very well in patients with, uh, who are on dialysis, and so does Elvis-Bierkersepervir. So you actually have two options, but because he was genotype 2, you only have the one option. Now here's a case where you know he was cirrhotic. We have to use a protease inhibitor, so you really want to make sure he's compensated because you don't want to push him 
over the edge uh, into liver failure. So if he was decompensated, I'd probably put him in the hands to an, of an expert. I certainly would, actually. <laughs> um, so going on, here's what happens to him. So you decide to treat him um, because he didn't want the kidney transplant. Four weeks into treatment, he comes in with these labs and complains of some malaise. Now he's got his liver enzymes rising, his bilirubin's up a little bit, and you're like, crap. <laughs> this is usually what happens like on your first hep C treatment case. The rest of them will go perfectly fine. Nothing will ever happen, but if you're treating the first I'm patient. Glad you did, like, Friday late <laughs> yeah, probably came in well, Friday, yeah. just as you were about to go see a show or something. <laughs> but, um, okay, so what do you think is going, what do you do? Do you immediately stop his hep C treatment and admit him to the hospital? Do you discontinue his hep C treatment and order labs or continue his hep C treatment and order some labs? Kind of gets at what do you think is going on here. Okay, so here's some potential explanations. This could be hep B reactivation. Remember I mentioned he's surface antigen. Could be hepatic decompensation, maybe related to, you know, he was sicker than you thought and you used a protease inhibitor. Uh, could be another viral infection or could, less likely, I think, dilly. We don't, haven't seen a lot of that. But what would you do, Andrew? Would you stop him or would you check I would labs? Not, I, just, I put that I wouldn't stop him. Yeah. I would keep him going. Cause, I mean, Yeah, so he's happy, so I agree. He's like a real happy, so that would yeah. be the most common thing. Well, not like just like more positive. Yeah. So. so this is trying to get at this issue of hep B reactivation. Has anybody actually seen this? No, I, I actually haven't seen it either. So it's sort of a, a lot of ado about nothing in a way, except for those people who are hep B surface antigen. They're at higher risk. You've seen those people reactivate? I've had one. One, okay. So why do we care about it? Well, there, in these cases of reactivations, they can be, become quite ill, and some people even died or needed liver transplants when it happens. So it happens very rarely, but if it does happen, they can be sick, which is why you want to detect it and re recognize it if it's happening. So um, the people at highest risk are people who are hep B surface antigen positive, but controlling their hep B, so they're not on a hep B medication because their immune system's been controlling it. For some reason, when you take hep C away in those patients, some of them will reactivate their hep B. It's like, I guess, you know, you can think of all different reasons related to the immune system or the liver, but it could happen. So for people who are surface antigen positive, that was the setting I, I was saying, I wouldn't just give them the meds and never check a lab. Those people, if they're not on hep B medication, should have their labs checked because this reactivation usually happens at like between week four and eight. And so um, there are some guide. it's in the guidelines how to monitor the people. Um, for the people who are just hep B core antibody positive, meaning they've been exposed for some, at some point, they're a bit less likely to reactivate. And those people, you know, again, I would probably measure some liver tests, but if nothing's going on, you don't need to check a hep B DNA. But for the surface antigen positive people, you might actually want to check a DNA while they're on the treatment. Certainly if their liver tests go up, you're going to check a hep B DNA. But there's more information on that, so that's a good section to refer to in the guidance if you're dealing with someone who has hep B. But just remember to test for hep B in everybody you're treating for hep C. And if they're not, immune, you should vaccinate them. So um, for this patient, he was genotype 2. He's cirrhotic, so he couldn't get an eight-week regimen. His creatinine clearance is 30, so you can't use the fosfavir, which is how he got to the GP. Um, and his cirrhosis, remember, needs monitoring after treatment, and his hep B surface antigen needed monitoring during treatment. 
So to summarize, we have, uh, I'm going to skip the summary slide because we'll just go to our break because I know I have to go to the bathroom. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, if there's any questions, we can take them after the break or you can come up and see me during the break. We'll have more cases when we get back.